0: This is the EC podcast by and for emerging conservation professionals. I'm your host, Liz A. Baer, and this week, we're talking about writing a master's thesis, part one.
1: So hello, my name is Terry Costello, and I am in the advanced professional program uh, for the glass and ceramics specialization at UVA. I wrote my thesis uh, as a diagnostic investigation into some cracking phenomenon that were found on multiple 17th to 18th century uh, Dutch glass horn objects. And yeah, that was my research.
0: My name is Liz A. Bear. I'm also an APP1, and I'm studying paintings. My thesis was on the visual interplay between darkening of paint layers, the ground, and the effect of wax resin lining in the night watch.
2: Lovely. Yes, I'm Paul van Laar. I graduated last year uh, from the technical art history program, which, as you might know, does not have an APP. Um, so I'm working now as a researcher at the Rijksmuseum, and I wrote my uh, thesis on the knowledge of optics in the 17th century and then specifically how that's expressed in the works of Johannes Vermeer, with or without a camera obscura maybe.
3: Um, hi, I'm Rodemey Coppens. I'm in the um, Masters two in the metal specialization and I am just starting out with my thesis. And the subject of my thesis is based on a weathering steel sculpture by Donald Judd uh, that was vandalized with graffiti after it was cleaned. Um, well, the cleaning process didn't go as expected, and there's still a you could still see like a silhouette of where the spray paint was so i'm trying to investigate um, what's causing that.
0: Great so today we're going to be talking about writing your thesis uh, something that Terry Paul and I have already done, but Roseme is just starting. So throughout the conversation, Rosemary, if you have any questions, please feel free to ask. We're actually going to start with a question from another student that we received. Uh, She says, I'm having difficulties with motivating myself to read some articles. So how did you manage to do all of the literature beforehand? I want to clarify something. I did not read all of my literature before. <laughs>
1: yeah, I will say it's definitely helpful to do most of your reading at the beginning because it does um, dictate a lot of your current knowledge and uh, where your research goes, because you don't want to do something that's already been done or um, you want to have a really good foundation. But yeah, it's hard to know. Also, what literature is out there all at once. So how did I motivate myself? Though that's a good question. (laughs) I think I really liked I started with the literature that I thought was really interesting. So I did a lot of the art history literature at first and got really interested in the objects themselves. And then through that interest, I also wanted to know what was happening to them and further understand the more technical aspects. So I think my advice would be start with the fun stuff and then we'll go on from there.
2: Yeah, I think I, I agree with that as well. Make it fun for yourself. Um, I was very overwhelmed at the beginning because there has been so much written about Vermeer that I kind of felt like, how and why am I even doing anything on Vermeer? Because there's people that have studied him for 50 years. Um, but I was lucky to have one of those people as a supervisor. So I kind of wanted to, you know, I didn't want to feel dumb in front of him. And he's one of those people that have written his whole entire life on Vermeer. Um, but then, yeah, maybe keeping it fun. You know, if you read a lot, you might run into fun facts and then you share that with friends or you you tell a nice story at the kitchen table. And for me, getting enthusiastic responses then, you know, saying, oh, wow, that's so cool, Vermeer. You know, and then that kind of gave me energy uh, from the outside. Also, not for my supervisor, but just friends and family. Yeah.
0: I think focusing on fun is also good advice because at least the first time that you read through all of your literature you need to take notes and do a very good job of that but you are going to have to reread your literature in a few months when you go back to writing so don't stress too much about getting it perfect right away it's going to come back you're going to be reading it multiple times
2: oh that's a very good one yeah maybe yeah also have a note system from the onset it doesn't have to be a perfect system but at least make sure that indeed, like in three months, you're like, oh, I read this one article. Make sure that at least for every article you read, that at least you write like five keywords that you can later search back into. Because I've had it so often that you're like, oh, I read one article once. And then you, you, yeah, you spend four hours looking for it. You don't end up finding it. Yeah. And you always feel like you're missing out. You always think that that one article is going to solve your, all your problems. Well, in the end, it probably isn't. But
1: yeah. on that, I also, um, what I did with my, research was that I had a book on my um, search engine. I just had a bookmark tab where anything I thought that might be relevant uh, website wise and article wise, I would just add it to that bookmarks tab. And then throughout writing, if I kind of didn't know where to go next, sometimes I just scroll through the open up all the tabs and be like, oh, right. I wanted to add that to this chapter. And uh, yeah, so for digital stuff, it's kind of easy because you can Hold on, of them a bookmark, oh, that's nice.
0: In sharing your research with family and friends, I know that while I was writing my thesis, my parents would send me articles that they came across that were just like, oh, this relates to Rem Grant, maybe you can use it, which is really sweet. not always useful, but uh, it, it helps you build that support system, which is going to be really important when you get into the actual writing process later on.
2: That's very funny that you say this, because especially like Rembrandt, I feel, is like one of those. Rembrandt pops up in the news every other week. And then yeah, once people know you're doing anything related to him, it's like something happens and you get seven of the same messages by 20 people. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I didn't think to ask this, but maybe if we could all talk about how we got our thesis topics. So, Terry, do you want to start?
1: Sure. So I'm not sure um, how it works with other specializations, but with the glass and ceramic specialization, uh, there's a pretty clear procedure where we have a meeting. Um, I forget what the timeline was, but it was at the beginning of our master's too. And we have two professors uh, in our specialization and we just spoke to them about our interests, certain types of topics. I know I told them I really was interested in chemical degradation of glass and glazes. Um, So some, it was also, they really want us to give them more issues and investigations rather than types of objects we were interested in. And then uh, since our professors have such a wide network and work with so many different institutes, they actually came to us with objects um, that fit our interests. It's actually funny because, the objects I worked on at first it was thought maybe chemical degradation was happening, but there was, what I proved was that it actually wasn't. So it's funny that the one thing I mentioned wasn't actually happening, but uh, so that was really nice because instead of trying to find these objects and find a topic that fit them, I got a lot of help. Um, And there's actually my professor Mandy who noticed these cracks for the first time. And she was always kind of wondering, what was going on. And she had this saved up as a topic for students eventually, and it fit me well, so that was nice.
0: We did the same type of process in paintings as well, um, which I really appreciated because I didn't have, in paintings we're just given one object that we work on for the first two years. And there was no topic related to that that interested me. Um, Some of the other paintings, people did end up doing their thesis on their artwork that they received. But I really appreciated being given a list of topics that I could choose from. And it was also really nice because I felt like my research topic was something that was desired by the conservation community. Like I wasn't just writing a thesis for the sake of the experience of writing a thesis, it was an actual question that people wanted to be answered. So I had something to work towards. Mm. Um, what happened in paintings, we have six people, some other specialties had less than us, but because there's six of us, there was actually some competition for uh, my topic. And what ended up happening with that was that because it was being sponsored by the Museum, both of us wrote a short Paragraph motivation uh, explaining why we wanted the thesis, and then we let them choose because we didn't feel comfortable deciding that for ourselves. Mm. Well,
2: yes, um, yeah, I think related to what Terry said as well that, yeah, there's our professors just have a, a huge network as well. Uh, and with technical artists, we don't really have one object like that yeah, with paintings, maybe that will serve as a thesis. Um, So I think what helped from the beginning was just talking to your professors from day one of the masters and and say what you're interested in, et cetera, et cetera. In the end, I think we had a meeting where they proposed some thesis topics that they had thought of. Um, I didn't really find one that connected with me. Um, So I was also thinking about smalt, like Liz did. But then one day I was just cooking dinner and one of my professors called me with um, a question like, hey, this project is coming up in the museum. Uh, Would you want to join? So, yeah, in the end, it is the network that they did it for, for most of us, I think, because the other students had a similar experience, I think, where a professor really came up with an idea and in the end, an amazing opportunity to join a team of professionals.
0: Rosemary?
3: Yeah, I think um, for me, it went a bit differently. Uh, I came with an object myself that I wanted to study. And uh, actually, that's not the object that I'm working on now. <laughs> but yeah, our supervisors are, are very open and flexible about this. So we can bring on whatever we, we are interested in, which is nice because it really helps with motivation, I think. Um, but I know for people who didn't have a clear idea of what they wanted to do, um, they also, based on their interest, did user network and got them very interesting objects to work on. So it worked out for everyone. But they're definitely giving us the space to share our interests and then um, also go down lanes that don't go anywhere. And then we still have time. Right. We're in the beginning still of, our, of our pieces. So, yeah, that's really nice.
1: Can I give some advice?
2: But yeah, that's maybe.
1: Oh, sorry. Oh, no, i was going to give some advice because um, I know the Masters 2 students are probably already know their direction, but I think maybe for Masters 1 or even people before, it might be nice advice to think about, like I said, the the objects you want to work on, the type of issues and problems. Because I know some people um, really were determined to work on types of objects and then found it difficult to come up with issues later. Um,
3: That's actually exactly what happened to me yeah I came up with an object that I found really interesting and I really wanted to work on it, and it was about preserving a graffiti layer. On a on a steel surface, but for conservation that's not super relevant because the issue that people come across is removing graffiti much more often and so that's yeah it was a sort of a grieving process to let go of the first object so yeah i think there is definitely right if you can start from some from from an actual problem that's probably easier
1: but what's nice is that in uh the advanced professional program part we do research projects where it's about treatment and maybe actually conserving graffiti is more maybe you can you know um come back to that object later on in your career and so it's always
0: know,
1: nice yeah <laughs> that would
0: be great I think that this is something that Paul specifically can speak to because uh you're kind of the smalt guy right I mean I think he wrote your bachelor's degree about it and you've yeah. tried to I know you didn't write your thesis about it but you have like made that known to people that that's your interest
2: yeah exactly um so, yeah, people knew that before I started the master's because, uh, yeah, I need my bachelor's research. And then I presented that on some conferences. Um, so they knew that. And then one professor in the program is very interested in SMALT. Um, so, when the thesis topic picking process came along, I was already doing uh, the SMALT research with her uh, at the Rijksmuseum. And then I didn't pick it as a thesis topic. I really. I asked myself why a lot of times, because I should have just done that maybe. So in the end, it kind of feels like I wrote two theses, which is a bit silly. Um, but yeah, no, in the end, I think I'm very happy because the, the actual thesis topic and my other professors as well said, well, you're, you've are you been doing SMOD for X amount of years. Now, maybe it's nice to do something else for a bit. Um, so and I think in the end, the Vermeer thesis really, really brought me a lot of stuff and connections as well in the end.
0: So moving onward, did all of us have to do some kind of uh, like reconstruction for our thesis?
1: I did, yeah.
3: In the metal specialization? Um, I, I don't think we do that very often. Sometimes maybe some test coupons, but not really reconstruction.
0: So. Yeah? Okay. Um, I know that a lot of people do end up having reconstructions in their thesis and it's something that you have to plan for time-wise. So how did you tackle that?
1: Actually, I will say, I think kind of like medals. Um, I was the only one in my group of five who did any reconstructions. Um, I don't know how, yeah, we often do reconstructions actually more for research, um, like with the research uh, articles we'll do later, but with my reconstruction, I was very, I have a very different situation because I didn't carry out the reconstruction myself. I worked with a glassblower who made reconstructions of the objects. So um, that involved, well, like you said, it, it's a long process it involved, uh, you know, communicating with him, setting up a date, um, going, uh, recording the process and everything um but what was nice is that the actual reconstruction took place in one day um so i actually have a very different situation with mine um but yeah i think with mine i actually didn't prepare i didn't know that that was going to be one of the type of analyses and it came about so yeah
0: how did it come about
1: uh so my professor, Vandy, and my supervisor, uh, Vandy Slacher, she's very, um, she's very adamant always about including the making process and talking to glass uh, makers and glass blowers as a way to understand the material. And we have a very good relationship with some glass blowers in Amsterdam. And actually, I know uh, both you know, you guys also spoke to some um uh, with the dry glass, uh, foundation in not in Amsterdam, but near Amsterdam. And we also were, uh, got into contact with another independent, um, glass in Amsterdam who we knew, uh, does a lot of reconstructions with, uh, glass research. So it actually started as more just trying to, uh, get information from these people. And then through that process, uh, the glassware that I ended up working with for the reproductions, Mark uh, Beretta he was like, oh, I actually make these objects. I can make some for you. We can test out your hypotheses. Let's work together. And me and my professor had to talk about if it was worth doing. It cost some money that wasn't funded by the university um, if it would contribute to the research. But we really thought it would. So that's how it came about. Yeah.
2: Well, yes. Um, I was wanting to reconstruct a uh, a camera obscura using preferably a seventeenth century lens because that really hasn't been done before, and we have one of those lenses in the Netherlands in Leiden. But then I was waiting, waiting, waiting for museums to open up, but that just didn't happen. So in retrospect, I should have said maybe that's a good tip. Then set a the deadline for yourself. If it's not going to work out before that date because you're waiting for a researcher or an institution then yeah find an alternative what i did in the end was uh way too i think two weeks before i finished my thesis i just decided i'll make my own camera obscura at home my parents were gone on holiday so i rebuilt the living room into a a camera obscura Um, but that was a little bit last minute because that was one entire chapter of my thesis and it was only done uh, a week or two in advance so yes, deadlines—personal deadlines—maybe the most important advice.
3: Yeah, I think that's very good advice. Thanks.
0: I also had to do a lot of reconstruction for my thesis. Um, we talked to the same glassblowing studio, and uh, me and Paul, along with somebody else who worked on a similar topic, Jesse Carter, uh, went to Bride Glass and spent two days there um, recreating smalt, which was fascinating to watch. Uh, So we were able to make small paint from that. And then I, on my own, had to make uh, the different ground recipes that I used, which were based on the ground found in the night watch. Um, And also I had to recreate the entire process of wax resin lining, um, which took a day. But all of the preparation leading up to that and blocking out my time, I'm not working alone on a lot of these things. I'm uh, beholden to the people at the Rijks Museum who have their own schedule. I need to schedule when I'm going to do all of my analysis on these reconstructions. So the reconstructions have to be done a few weeks before the analysis takes place. You really have to do a good job of planning out your calendar if you have an involved reconstruction as part of your thesis. Um, And I wanna be clear that you're going to get things wrong looking back there are things that i would do differently in my thesis but you know you do the best with what you can and try to make you know try to get as many results out of what you actually reconstruct as possible
3: can i ask a question about the analysis yeah um because we now had to submit submit a form to ask about uh doing analysis and um for example they ask for a date that you want the results for your analysis which is very confusing to all of us cuz there yeah we don't know what how, how the process is going to go how much time we need um everyone needs very different things from this analysis so uh, so i was wondering how that went for you
0: guys I had a bit of a unique case because I was working with the Rijks Museum and they're currently doing a lot of research on the night watch. So as part of a larger research project operation night watch. So I was able to be in direct communication with them and they had access to the analysis that I needed. I really didn't have to worry about planning or, you know, competing with other people for analysis time slots, but I know that most people do. Uh, especially if you're working with the RCE, which I think is how most people in our program do their analysis. Did you have any of that, Terry?
1: Yeah, I was actually just trying to see if I could pull up the sheet because I have my request form um, still on my computer. So all my analysis, the instrumental analysis that is, was done by the RCE. Um, I, oh, that's a lie, sorry. One was, so I did um, XRF reading with uh, the RCE, and then with um, someone from the Reich's Museum, I did ion chromatography. Um, I always forget that he's Reich's Museum and not RCE. But um, the since I only had the XRF analysis, um, I I uh, submitted the report, the request site, and then I'm, I actually don't know what day I asked for the results, but I think it's always better to ask for results earlier than the last minute you need them because the RCE, I mean, they're researchers, they're doing their own projects. They actually, this is, um, you know, I wouldn't say benevolent, of them, but they, they do do this to help us um, with our research. So it's always good to remember that they have their own stuff going on. So. I think it's always good to ask um, for the date earlier than later.
0: But also keep in mind that you can be multitasking. You can be writing other sections of the thesis even without the results.
1: Yes, yeah. but also sometimes the results do uh, inform your direction of your research. So uh, I know with mine, what with my research i had multiple hypotheses and then my analysis um my instrumental analysis actually then rejected two of the hypotheses so then i focused on the third one that it didn't reject and really dove into that hypothesis so um whereas if i hadn't gotten those results until the last minute i would have to equally investigate all three hypotheses so um yeah you can always multitask i think though um it's nice to get your results Early.
0: Paul, do you have anything to say on analyses?
2: Yeah, planning, of course, yeah, well, we were also writing a thesis in Corona, which for me made it very hard. So I was indeed part, part of the, the, the Vermeer team then, but then the Rechus aim at the moment was focusing mostly on the night watch. Uh, so that meant that there wasn't really any room for me um, to do any analysis for the Vermeer team because they're just going to do that in only two years, I think. Yeah.
0: All right. Um, So the next part of the process for everyone, I assume, is writing. Uh, We do some of the writing while all of this other stuff is going on. I know one of the first sections of the paper that's uh, due for your supervisors is on your literature. Uh, And the reason that's done in that order is because it forces you to read your literature, to reflect on it, and to really start thinking about your topic complexly. But uh, in terms of the entire writing process, what was your experience like? What do you look back on uh, and maybe would change? Um, I can start if that's okay.
2: Yeah. I think for me, but that's something I've always run into. It's just like start writing as soon as you can. Um, I'm someone who always, you know, or I think a lot of people, a lot of researchers have that. I guess is, you know, you always feel like there's something out there you don't know yet, and then my brain just doesn't function yet. And like I don't, I haven't read those yet, so I can't start writing. Um, and that really brought me into problems later on, especially if you're then faced with scheduling issues like reconstructions or analysis being postponed. Um, so yeah, it's, it's nice. I would just start writing immediately try, you know, it's a very good tip. I've never done it, but I've heard people say, write a paragraph every day, just like write a little something on what you read. Um, and then one professor had a very good tip. She has a writing fridge um a separate document in which you just if you've written something and you think ah it's not going to be in my final thesis throw it in your fridge document and then after a while that will be quite a gorgeous document with some nice little sentences that you might be able to use or references that you forgot about kind of similar maybe to terry's bookmark idea um and then every once in a while you go back to your fridge and you think oh i was writing or thinking about that little not of information. I haven't done that yet, so maybe I can work on that today. Uh, but yeah, write, write, write early on. That's, I think, the one.
1: Yeah, I think for my writing process, I'm a little different. See, my mom, whenever we talk about things, she always says, just blurt everything out, and I can't do that. I kind of need to have a outline first and know where I'm going, or else it, it's a complete mess. Um, so I actually, I'm trying to remember, I think I didn't I went by chapter by chapter is the thing. And as soon as I kind of had the outline in the concept of a chapter, I would write it then. So, And it was nice because we did have internal deadlines of uh, current knowledge chapter, instrumental analysis chapter. So I knew I had to get those chapters done. Um, I like Paul's idea a lot about a separate document. For me, what I did was I would just save a lot of drafts if I was gonna delete something. So I'd write, you know, a paragraph and then be like, "Oh, I, I actually don't think this paragraph's necessary," but I wouldn't just delete it. I would save that as a draft, change it so that if I go back and say, "Oh, wait, no, I wanted that," um, I think though, like I said, I kind of work chapter by chapter. But maybe if I did something differently. I waited until the end to throw it all together in one document. And then I realized that the order wasn't great. And I actually, yeah, it didn't flow exactly. So I spent some time having to reorganize and cut some out. So I know, um, one of, uh, our classmates who I actually lived with at the same time, she always had like a working thesis document so she could see what it looked like at all times. And I think that would be one thing I would change myself.
0: Yeah. For me, writing is like pulling teeth. I absolutely loathe it. Uh, I have a lot of really good advice for strategies because I have ADD and with that, you know, I've got a great support system that I, I have dozens of ideas of how to go about writing. It's actually implementing them that I find to be really, really difficult. Um, Some of the things that I did that I found to be really helpful were setting timers, working for 20 minutes, taking a 15 minute break, then 20 minutes, 15, Uh, going for walks. I lived with somebody who was also writing a thesis. And so we would go on long walks and talk things out. Um, Talking things out for me is really easier than writing. And so Sometimes I would record my voice while I was just kind of spitballing on my own to the empty air. And then I'd go back, listen to it and be like, oh, wait, that sounded really good and just type that out. Um, and I, this was one of the biggest undertakings of my life. I had to be really strict with myself about actually sitting down and writing because you can't push it off to the end. You really do have to write a little bit Every day or so, Um, that's really, really hard, but you're going to be very grateful for that when you get to the end and all you have left to write is a conclusion and then some editing. It's not that easy. I'm making it sound way easier than it is.
1: (laughs) Can I also add to the advice column? Um, I'm a big analog person, so I actually had I have right here a binder of every time I did readings, I would take a sheet of paper, write out the author, and then on that write page numbers as I took notes. But I also would, yeah, if I was kind of thinking about structure, I would just take a piece of paper, draw it out, write it out, write arrows and stuff. And then it made writing a lot easier because then I kind of had this in front of me to refer back to. And um, yeah, so I, I always am a big proponent of writing things by hand because you also memorize it in like it sticks to you in your brain and you can if yeah kind of like with speaking i feel more free to change things around where sometimes with typing i feel like it's very final like i'm typing on a typewriter that these are what's that's how it's gonna be and i can't change it so yeah
0: rosemary do you have any questions about writing no
3: i'm just scared now <laughs> <laughs> No, I think all your tips are super valuable and I, I know I'm going to use them, um, but I am a bit scared to get started.
0: It's really important to remember that you're not in it alone. There are 20 other people in your program that are in the exact same boat as you. I think um, COVID makes it difficult, but I do think that we got in touch with each other and relied on each other a little bit for a support system. Um, <clears throat> additionally, Uh, A few times while I was writing my thesis, we in paintings and me with some friends that were also writing theses, we got together and we got an Airbnb for a few days on a weekend and we had a writing trip. I know Paul's done this as well. It's really nice. Uh, You all cook together. You have fun. But then in the day you work on writing your thesis.
2: Don't bring uh, too much wine, though. That's what we did. And that went wrong.
1: (laughs) It's also nice. I found that every once in a while I would do this thing where I zoom out on the document and then you see the pages that you have and the nice, how the photos look in the pages. And I'm like, oh, I'm actually doing something. It's pretty, it fits all together. So it's nice to kind of, I always like to zoom out and be like, right, okay, this is a, (laughs) it's coming together.
0: more about emerging conservation professionals, please follow us on Instagram, at ecpodcast, and email any questions to ecpodcastxxx at gmail.com. This podcast is edited by Liz A. Bear. Our theme song is by Manet van Feldhausen and Paul van Laar. Our logo is designed by Adler Papjernik. If you liked this episode, please leave a review and subscribe.